Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Good evening, everyone. Okay, we begin the readout tonight with a history lesson starring Major General Smedley Butler. Now, you may be a little-known name outside of military circles, but don't let that fool you. This is a Marine with a big military resume, starting with the war against Spain in 1898. He was twice awarded the Medal of Honor. Hollywood loved him. So did Theodore Roosevelt, who called him the ideal American soldier. But the story we're going to tell didn't happen in a conflict overseas but rather in Pennsylvania, where one day a bond salesman approached Butler with a pitch. Imagine half a million veterans marching on Washington, a move financed by some of the most powerful corporations in America. The purpose? To stop President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, which was opposed by wealthy business leaders as a socialist doctrine. This army of veterans would pressure the president to hand over executive powers of government, And if the president refused, he would be forced to resign. The bond salesman, after, you know, casually pitching the violent overthrow of the U.S. government, then asked Butler if he would be interested in heading this march, to which General Butler replied, my one hobby is maintaining a democracy. If you get these 500,000 soldiers advocating anything smelling of fascism, I am going to get 500,000 more and lick the hell out of you. And we will have a real war right at home. The general then reported this exchange to the U.S. government. And here he is revealing the so-called business plot before a panel of the Special House Committee on Un-American Activities. I appeared before the Congressional Committee, the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The panel, the media, the American public did not take this exchange as seriously as Butler did. No one was ever prosecuted or even punished. The allegations turned into one big joke, an elaborate scheme by the super rich to topple the U.S. government for their own financial interests? Impossible, right? Right? What Major General Butler did for American democracy was certainly heroic whether people at the time believed him or not. He was also far from the perfect hero. He would even call himself a racketeer for capitalism. Jonathan Katz, who wrote about Butler in his new book, outlines how Butler blazed a path for the U.S. empire, helping seize the Philippines and land for the Panama Canal, invading and helping plunder Honduras and Nicaragua, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Mexico, and more meaning he played a heavy hand in all that yucky stuff that isn't taught in schools or in museums or in movies. America as empire tends to sell fewer tickets. But perhaps it was those layers and contradictions that allowed Butler to see what this pitch was really about. An alleged political conspiracy to overthrow President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and install a fascist government in his place. Fast forward almost nine decades and we've now witnessed another attempted coup, led by a man who simply couldn't admit that he lost an election, 
and whose movement of Trumpism was created and funded and sustained by big business. That populist bit, that was just a sham. And just like in 1934, we're seeing a similar pattern of denialism and deflection when it comes to what we're up against. Dozens of witnesses and participants in the January 6th insurrection have stonewalled the select committee. And several who have testified still refuse to answer questions. Most recently, the right-wing fake news host, Alex Jones, revealed that he pleaded his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination nearly 100 times during an interview on Monday. John Eastman, the notorious Trump lawyer who literally put the plan for a coup in writing, also claimed his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination as a response to nearly 150 questions and to document and to his document subpoena, according to a lawyer for the House who spoke to CNN. But in contrast with the alleged fascist plot of 1934, we're seeing a modicum of accountability when it comes to the MAGA mob who served as Trump's boots on the ground on January 6th. Just today, Stuart Rhodes and nine of his Oath Keeper cohorts pleaded not guilty to charges of seditious conspiracy. They're among more than 700 who've been charged in connection with this current insurrection. Joining me now is Malcolm Nance, MSNBC counterterrorism and intelligence analyst and the author of the upcoming book, They Want to Kill Americans, the Militias, Terrorists, and, Deran- and the Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency. And Jonathan Katz, aforementioned author of The Racket Newsletter and of the new book, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, The Making and Breaking of America's Empire. I want to start with you, Jonathan Katz. I so enjoyed this incredible long read about Smedley Butler. What a name, first of all. Talk a little bit about this plot that we've sort of outlined going in here. As you've researched this, how real was this attempt? How serious were they? And who were some of the sort of big business and corporate interests behind it? So what we know is basically what Butler testified in front of Congress in November 1934, and that is that a representative of a prominent Wall Street financial institution came to him and tried to enlist him in this plot. We can be pretty sure that the guy who approached him thought that there was a fascist coup behind him that he was trying to foment. Uh, In my research, I can tell you that his boss, a guy named Grayson M.P. Murphy, had a long intelligence background. He had been uh, involved in overthrowing governments overseas. Uh, He was certainly the kind of person who might have been uh, involved in this. Beyond that, all we have is the idea that the representative of this uh, brokerage, a guy guy named uh, Gerald C. McGuire, told Butler that there were going to be big names coming to support it from behind the scenes, and that those names would include people like the DuPonts, uh, Alfred P. Sloan of General Motors, the McCann Eric uh, 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 ad agency, Phillips Oil, Sun Oil, places like that. What we don't know is how involved they were and what to what extent the planning had had gone forward before uh, uh, Butler was approached and then came forward to blow the whistle. And we know that something called the Liberty League was ultimately formed. And it was these same, you know, industrialists and wealthy people who didn't like the idea of having a new deal because in they, they, they tagged it as socialism. Right. They said it's socialism and we need to we'd rather have fascism than that. Yeah. In 1934, much as in 2022, A lot of people thought that liberal democracy was on the way out and that the only ways forward were either fascism or communism. 
And to the business elite in America, fascism seemed like the more attractive of those two options. So we don't know, again, whether any of the the, the big names uh, that that uh, Jerry Maguire you know, said we're going to be coming behind this, we're actually behind it to what degree they were. But we do know that a number of people who were members of the Liberty League, uh, including, you know, the head of uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, was a big fan of Mussolini. He, he said that he was a, he considered himself some of a, uh, a missionary for the Italian fascists. We know that Hugh Johnson, who was part of the New Deal administration, uh, who was also mooted as somebody who was going to be involved in the business plot, he also uh, was a committed admirer of of Mussolini and European fascism. And we know that the the guy who approached uh, Smedley Butler, Jerry Maguire, he had been on a tour of the fascist hotspots of Europe and met with members of one of the real antecedents to January 6th. Uh, in February of 1934, there was a fascist and far-right riot in Paris to storm the parliament uh, to uh, prevent the, the uh, handover of power to a center-left prime minister, mm-hmm. uh, which there are a lot of ties between that and, and January 6th. And we know that Maguire met with with members of the Quad de Faux, which were, you know, maybe sort of the oath keepers of, of Paris, <laughs> 1934. Yeah. So, you know, there, there, there was, there was, there's a lot to say that there would have been support for a coup like this if it had uh, pushed forward, at least in terms of the people that, that Maguire was saying were behind it. Yeah. We just don't know the extent to which this planning had gone forward in large part because Congress cut the investigation short. Yeah. There's a lot of lessons to be learned here, um, Malcolm, one of which is that big industrial interests um, will sometimes mesh with our military's missions. And I think it's something we don't like to talk about, right? Because we, we, we want to portray America and American military as always the good guys. And I actually have a great admirer of the American military I happen to be. But I mean, in, in a lot of ways, our history is a history of empire. And it's something we don't talk about a lot. Do you think it's something we need to start to face? Because, I don't know, there are risks there. And right now we're seeing sort of paramilitary and military people participating in another attempted coup, at least a small number of them. I seem to recall this guy who was supreme allied commander of all forces in Europe in World War II, who successfully landed in Europe uh, and on a crusade took the entire place back as a rabid anti-fascist named uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. And he became president of the United States. And if I'm not mistaken, he warned of this very thing, that war was a racket and that corporations by the mid-1950s we're now using the United States government as their way of surviving. And so I think that, you know, for someone with as much experience uh, in the greatest period of economic uh, development and re-engineering, don't forget, we, we changed refrigerators into tanks, right? Yeah. Refrigerator companies were building, were, were doing pistols. You know, Remington Rand started making rifles uh, that we should pay attention to that. Now, are we ever going to stop this? That's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, we have far greater problems going on right now in the engineering of, of our democracy. And, you know, interesting thing, I am a fan of Smedley Butler. I actually have Smedley Butler memorabilia in my man cave because he, his statement about the, uh, the, the plot in 1932 was almost precisely what 
in better, you know, more rough terms, what General Milley said last year about mm. the armed forces of the United States not getting involved in politics. We are revolving around this. And the big question is, um, will the American public actually be awake this November to put a stop to this? Or are we just going to, you know, sleepwalk our way into yeah. fascism? Well, let me play something, because I think for a lot of Americans, you hear conservatives throwing around terms like Marxism and socialism a lot. To, to mean a lot of things, which generally don't have much to do with actual, you know, socialism and Marxism and communism as they are practiced around the world. They generally just mean policies that help poor people and people of color. and They don't like them. Let me just play a little montage of that uh, going on over the years and over the decades. The Cold War we face today is the lusty child of the New Deal's rendezvous with communism. They have established the prerequisites to a socialistic, or even later, a communistic state. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. This group who came to our state and who led these uh, demonstrations and who were present here, many of them belong to communist front organizations. We have people in Washington who want to take us into socialism. Public housing is one of the last bastions of socialism in the world. Switching these programs, and this is where I'm talking about healthcare as well, from a third party or socialist based system. Now is not the time to experiment with socialism. The Democrats, they used to be like normal people. Now they're socialists, Marxists, communists. With the last little bit of time we have left, Malcolm, you know, we have a president, Donald Trump, who sort of styled himself as a populist, but whose policies overwhelmingly benefited the wealthy and, and high corporate interests. And then we have an attempted coup by people who want him to stay in forever. Right. They want the deregulation of oil and gas, who want increased military spending to go on forever, who want more right wing justices who are basically corporatists who side with big business 70 percent of the time. It's hard for me to see much difference between that and what, uh, you know, Mr. Katz wrote about, that you do have very wealthy interests who have a great interest in having a fake populist movement that's willing to go to war to keep their guy in power doing those things to help the rich forever. No? Would have been, yeah, well, what did Benito, Benito Mussolini, when he, when, he, when he termed the phrase fascist, define it as, right? A dictatorship of the corporate right. That is the literal definition of what fascism was. Adolf Hitler was supported by the largest corporations in Germany, right? I, and right up to the point where the Vonnesy Conference had these major corporations sitting there figuring out what kind of furnaces they could make to burn X number of bodies per day so that they could have a final solution to the problem of the Jews in Europe, right? And we held them accountable at Nuremberg for the most part, but many of those same corporations are in operation today. Um, again, Dwight D. Eisenhower made it very clear that when there's money to be made, there is going to be an interest for perpetual, whether it's warfare or the propping up of fascism. The only difference of what we have today and what all those quotes that you had from Ronald Reagan and, 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 and all of the rest, I would have thrown in the quote from uh, Major General Jack T. Ripper in, um, in, uh, in, in, in Stanley Kubrick's uh, famous <laughs> film about atomic war, uh, you know, I, where he said, where he thought there was a conspiracy of putting fluoride in there. Well, that's QAnon in the Republican yeah. Party today. Yeah. 
with people in the military. And by the way, Reagan was talking about Medicare in that rant. Um, Jonathan Um, Katz, I have to tell you, this thing was an excellent read. I hope everyone goes out and buys your book, man. That was it was fantastic. I hope everyone reads it. Malcolm Nance, my friend, appreciate you. Everybody out there, follow the money. Think about who's funding and paying for and profiteering and profiting off of what we're seeing happening and what happened in January, last January. Think about it. It's worth doing. Thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, Trump pleaded with Georgia officials to steal the votes that he needed to win the state. We are the tape. So what happens next in Fulton County's grand jury investigation? Also, Democrats are scoring major victories over egregious Republican gerrymandering. But how will free how free and fair will the next election actually be? Plus, Arizona Democrats send a loud and clear message to Kirsten Cinema. Continue to obstruct the Biden agenda at your own peril. From political peril. The state party chairwoman joins me. And tonight's absolute worst says, email me. But he doesn't want to chat. He's looking for dirt on your kids' teachers. And hey, guess what? I'm going to be on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert tonight. It is going to be a lot of fun. Please tune in tonight. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The January 6th Select Committee is not the only investigation into Donald Trump that is picking up steam. A panel of judges in Georgia has given the green light to Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis to seat a special grand jury for her investigation into Trump's attempts to overturn the election results in that state. Now, we all remember Trump's notorious phone call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger a year ago. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find... Uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Now, just to be clear, President Biden won Georgia, and that was further verified by not one, but two statewide recounts and a partial forensic audit overseen by Raffensperger. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that D.A. Willis is also examining the abrupt resignation of former Atlanta-based U.S. attorney B.J. Pack. A November 2020 call, on a November 2020 call, Senator Lindsey Graham placed to Raffensperger and false claims made by Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani during a hearing before the Georgia Senate Judiciary Committee. And now with the power of a special grand jury, Willis has the right to subpoena witnesses and to provide to provide documents and testimony, which is key because she has said that many witnesses have refused to fully cooperate. 
including Secretary of State Raffensperger. Joining me now is Maya Wiley, former assistant U.S. attorney, and Peter Strzok, former FBI counterintelligence agent and author of Compromised Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. Thank you both for being here and welcome to the show, Peter. Um, But I'm going to start with you, Maya. Here are the potential laws that were broken in this whole scheme. And I'll just put them up on screen. Everything from criminal solicitation to racketeering. Um, As you look at it, although Raffensperger is trying to dismiss it, how differently will this investigation go now that there's a grand jury involved? And can they indeed compel up to including and including Raffensperger and Lindsey Graham and Donald Trump to testify? Well, the short answer is the fact that it's the grand jury means exactly that, that they can compel their testimony before the grand jury. And as we know, Raffensperger himself has already said, look, I will I will go in and talk to the people. Um, and I would suspect we're going to see very few people pulling a Roger Stone uh, and or, you know, or um, or any or Steve Bannon and calling the bluff of a district attorney with an impaneled grand jury, because that carries its own penalties. And the other thing is, what do they have to gain? I mean, they've already made public statements. There's so much that's already in the public record about all the efforts to both privately press and publicly cajole and virtually threaten um, so many of these Georgia officials who themselves were Republicans, are Republicans, into doing exactly uh, what Donald Trump wanted them to do, and Donald Trump personally calling. He personally called many Georgia officials. uh, And that in and of itself makes it, I think, very difficult for them to sort of say, I'm not going to talk about what's been talked about publicly and which I myself have talked about publicly because a grand jury subpoena. Very hard to imagine. Yeah. And, you know, Peter, there's a, there's a certain, you know, doing the crimes out in the open, you know, sort of quality to it, the shamelessness of it. And the fact that Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham were just openly making phone calls, you know, trying to urge the secretary of state to overturn a, a legitimate election. Does the shamelessness, the openness of it, let's say you put yourself in an investigator's role and you've been, the, you know, you've, you've, you've taken the brunt of it. You know how these folks are. Does the doing it in the open as an investigator indicate guilt or just a lack of knowledge that what you're doing is illegal? Well, I certainly think it indicates a brazenness and probably a lack of sophistication or care about what they were doing. Uh, you know, you can you can say you're doing something and have the all the intent in the world to do something that's wrong. You know, what's really interesting to me is Georgia is part of a pattern. When you talk about things being in the open, um, the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco today talked about how, that DOJ was looking at all these states with these alternate electors that had, uh, you know, slates that were sent into the National Archives. Many of those people said straight open to the the media as it was going on, yes, we're doing it. So again, just because people are talking about it doesn't mean that they weren't breaking the law. It just means that they were either dumb and or they didn't care because those two things aren't exclusive of each other. Well, I mean, and and the Lisa Monaco news, you just you just uh, talked about that. I did want to get into that with you. And it, it is the first time that the Justice Department has actually commented, you know, on what they're doing in a probe that actually is significant to January 6th. And, and I, I guess that would be the question. Let's say that somebody is planning something like this. The fact that they're talking about it openly, the fact that people put their names down and said, I'm an elector, knowing they're not an elector. Is that fraud? Is it racketeering? Like, how, how do you even investigate something that people are admitting? You know, we just had a guy go on Ari Melber's show. A couple of people went on Ari Melber's show a couple this week and said, yeah, that's what we were doing. 
Well, I think that's exactly what Lisa Monaco said was going on. And I mean, what's interesting is I've, I've taken part in, I'm sure Maya has too, and going whenever you make a statement to the press about something that's going on investigatively or prosecutorially, those are very carefully crafted statements. And they are something that should be parsed very, very specifically about what is and isn't said. And what she said in her statement is, A, these referrals that prosecutors are looking at them, and that B, she couldn't talk anymore about ongoing investigations. So what that tells me right away is that one, in fact, yes, you have assistant United States attorneys, possibly US attorneys, who are looking at these allegations, looking at the federal criminal code, and seeing what, if any, statutes might be implicated, what the elements of the crime are, whether or not those elements are met, or what more might need to be done investigatively to figure it out. And then the other part, the last part she said, I can't talk anymore about ongoing investigations. Well, guess what? That means there are right now in the Department of Justice ongoing investigations about these referrals. So it was a very short sentence. It was a very short statement, but I don't think you can really underestimate just how much meat is beneath that apparently simple statement. Indeed, because it would seem, Maya, that it is, it is hard for I mean, most people to get wrap their heads around the idea that an open attempt to flip an, an election, to go from state to state and say, no, I need you to literally change the votes for me, or saying we're going to impanel these fake electors, send them, and then we're going to push and cajole and maybe even threaten the vice president of the United States to use those electors instead of the real ones. It's hard for most people to imagine that's not a crime. So just, we'll talk a little bit about the Fannie Willis of it, because she does seem to be very methodically doing a job that people would love to see the Justice Department doing. What is the difference here? Because she seems to be able to, I mean, she's not giving us information, you know, about her investigation, but at least we understand what's happening there. Why is that so different in character from what we're seeing coming out of Washington? Well, you know, I think we have to really remember two things. Um, She is an, an elected official. The attorney general is not. Um, the, it is those are very different roles when you're the top law enforcement officer for the country and your job is to uphold the laws of the country in a nonpartisan way. You can advance policies of your president, but you can't execute the criminal laws of the country in a partisan way. That's very different if you're an elected district attorney. Uh, and also she has a very extensive public record of things that president himself has said that she has Republican elected officials having said, yeah. and also the fact that those officials, since they were refusing to cooperate, caused her to publicly go and ask a judge to give her permission to impanel a grand jury. So by very definition, her tools were public tools. Yeah. And to Peter's Absolutely. point, the investigations of the Department of Justice are not. I, I am literally out of time. Peter Strzok, if you, but really quickly, if you were investigating this situation, would you be interviewing Lindsey Graham? Real quick. Uh, At some point, yes. Uh, Eventually, I would, in the investigative chain, work my way up and seek to interview him. Maya Wiley, Peter Strzok, thank you both very much. Still ahead, if you were starting to forget what good political news for Democrats sounds like, you're in luck. We have got some for you, finally, on the other side of this quick break. Don't go anywhere. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. 
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. It is 2022, and that means it's another election year in very challenging conditions. So let's start with some good news, because it feels like there's far too much bad news these days. Three judges in Alabama have blocked the Republican-drawn congressional districts map because it was likely that it violated the Voting Rights Act. The judges agreed that the map constituted racial gerrymandering by diluting black voters into just literally one majority black district out of the seven that they have. On Monday, the Ohio Redistricting Commission passed new four-year maps for state legislative districts after the state Supreme Court struck down the previous proposal because it violated partisan gerrymandering prohibitions in the Ohio Constitution. The Ohio State Supreme Court will have to decide if Republicans did enough with the new maps to provide Democrats with proportional representation. And the North Carolina State Supreme Court is set to review a case challenging the Republican-drawn map for the state house and the state's 14 congressional districts. That's all good. Okay, but here's the bad news. <laughs> Republicans are determined to seize power by any means necessary anyway. Take, for example, Michigan, where Republicans are circulating a petition that would allow them to bypass Governor Whitmer and impose new restrictive voting laws. And here's something far worse. The MAGA cult is now determined to control election results from within, playing the long game with its eyes on 2024 by electing more unscrupulous and anti-democratic secretaries of state boards of election, and other election-related offices. With me now is Mark Elias, founder of Democracy Docket and partner at Elias Law Group. He has been a key player in some of these major cases and has become a boogeyman for the Republicans who are trying to do this. Let's, I want to start with the good news because I feel like we don't talk about it enough. But, you know, on the ground, in courts, Democrats are actually winning in some of these key attempts to, you know, act even under the kind of muted and, and, and hobbled Voting Rights Act. Talk a little bit about redistricting and how important that is. Sure. So, look, um, redistricting is central to democracy because Republicans unable to win the popular vote have turned to the rules of elections to rig the outcomes. And one of the ways they do that is by drawing districts where they choose voters rather than the other way around. And, Joy, you're exactly right. The fact is we have seen the courts play an important role, an important backstop to democracy. You mentioned the important uh, victory uh, in Alabama uh, where the court uh, found uh, that uh, the map that uh, the Republican legislature in Alabama drew likely violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. I might add, by the way, two of the three judges in that case were appointed by Donald Trump. The third was a Reagan appointee originally. Um uh, in uh, Ohio, the state Supreme Court, which leans Republican, I might add, uh, struck down not just the state legislative maps, which you talked about, but also the state's congressional maps. And we're waiting that process for a redraw continues. And as you note, um, on February 2nd, uh, we will be back in court in North Carolina, uh, where that state Supreme Court will have a chance to take a look at whether the 
partisan gerrymander there violates the state's constitution. You know, and you said North Carolina, and I think North Carolina is actually an instructive uh, case because Democrats in that state and activists in that state have actually been really diligent about pursuing state power, about pursuing power at the state level and the local level. So they're actually, you, we don't hear a lot as much about North Carolina. Remember, they were the state that had, what did they say that the, this, uh, the, the courts that found that their attempts to violate voting rights were like textbook uh, discrimination. They were like written out of, if, if you had a science book that did discrimination and it was that. And once they got past that, is there something that they're doing right on the ground there that we could learn from in states like Michigan, for instance? Yeah. So what the Fourth Circuit found after the North Carolina Republican, uh, ger- uh, not gerrymandered, uh, in, in 2013, right after Shelby County, the Republican legislature um, passed a voter suppression bill, which what the Fourth Circuit found was that it targeted African-Americans with, quote, near That's surgical it. precision. Right. Now, just to put that in perspective, what the court found is that the Republican legislature ordered a review of all of the provisions of voting and whether they have a greater uh, impact on black voters or white voters. And they chose to make voting harder for black voters while minimizing the inconvenience for white voters. So that was that case in 2013. And what happened in North Carolina was Reverend Barber and Moral Monday. And it is the reason why I always say that, you know, when people ask me how I got into this, and what my inspiration is, I always say it was Reverend Barber. And if there are people in your audience who don't know who Reverend Barber is, then they don't understand how you fight voter suppression in this country. Because he brought together a multiracial, multi-ethnic um, fusion coalition to focus on voter suppression, not to hide from it, not to say we don't want to talk about it, but to raise it up and say we all need to tackle this, that when our neighbors can't vote, whether they are black or they are white, whether they are young or they are old, we all lose. And so that culture in North Carolina has really transformed the state. Yeah, indeed. So where are you where do we need to do more Reverend Barbering? Where are the states where you're really concerned? I mean, Michigan seems like a, a, a nightmare. Wisconsin. Where are you focused right now? Where should we be, be, be taking, you know, focusing our attention? Yeah. So obviously, Georgia, Texas, Florida, everyone knows about. Yeah. But what we need to do is we need to realize that this is an epidemic throughout the country. The big lie has spread to all 50 states. Now, they can't effectuate policy in all 50 states, but we need to be on the lookout in all 50 states. So I'm worried about Republicans uh, changing the laws for voting in Iowa that disenfranchise and harm Latino voters. I worry about what they've done in Arkansas to the black voting population in, in Kansas. And of course, in key battleground states like Wisconsin, like Pennsylvania, like Michigan. But we really need to embrace this as a national movement, whether it's a blue state or a red state or a purple state. We all have an obligation to look out for voting rights for ourselves and for our communities. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is that in Virginia right now, where with expanded voting rights, with the the Northam administration having expanded voting rights, Republicans won the governorship. So so despite the fact that they were successful under expanded voting rights, what they're doing right now in Virginia 
is trying to contract voting rights, right? And so it's like whether or not they're successful electorally, they're still doing it, and which is why we need you everywhere. I want to just put up for everyone just so that you guys know where redistricting is right now, um, where people have, you know, maps have been overturned really only in Ohio so far, right? Um, How likely is it that, for instance, New York, New York's got a fight right now because even Democrats are actually now trying to do some aggressive things on redistricting in New York. Um, Where do you think the next battleground on redistricting is going to be? Yeah. So first of all, I would add Alabama now to overturn. Okay. You know, the Republicans are going to go. They've already filed a notice of appeal in uh, federal court. But let's understand there was a victory. And I'm going to put that in the win column for yes. the time being. Where are we looking else? Um, certainly North Carolina is right now the next big fight. Uh, Florida, you know, uh, the Always. Republicans in Florida proposed a moderate gerrymander and mm-hmm. DeSantis said, no, no, unless you extremely gerrymander and obliterate um, uh, black majority districts, we're, I'm going to veto the map or I'm yeah. not going to support it. Yeah. So I'd put Florida on the list, South Carolina. Yeah. Um, uh, I'd add to that list as well. Uh, you are a, a very valuable, you're an MVP for democracy. We really appreciate you. And we always thank you for giving us some of your time. Mark Lies. Thank you very much. Thank appreciate you. all that you do. All right. Tonight's absolute worst is still ahead. But up next, Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema. Her chickens, her chickens are coming home to roost as Democrats in her state start mobilizing to put an end to her obstruction by voting her out of her seat. Stay with us. Well, in the Senate, we no longer have 60 votes. There's none of this pressure, this false pressure to get to 60. Eliminating the 60 vote threshold will simply guarantee that we lose a critical tool that we need to safeguard our democracy from threats in the years to come. Kirsten Cinema's 180-degree turnabout from progressive Arizona congresswoman to conservative freshman senator doomed Senate Democrats' chances of passing voting protection legislation and garnered her a big rebuke back home. The Arizona Democratic Party voted Saturday to censure Cinema for refusing to support a change to filibuster rules for voting legislation, citing her failure to do whatever it takes to ensure the health of our democracy. Now, cinema isn't up for re-election for another two years, but Democratic groups are making it clear that they're over her antics. Voto Latino, one of the nation's largest Latino grassroots organizations, has launched an Adios Cinema campaign, committing six figures to unseat her in her next primary. Arizona's Democratic voters are also increasing, increasingly fed up with Kirsten. A poll conducted this month found that 48% of Democratic voters there had an unfavorable view of cinema. 42 had a favorable view. By contrast, only 17% had an unfavorable view of Arizona's junior Democratic Senator Mark Kelly. I'm joined now by Arizona State Senator Raquel Tehran. She's the chair of the Arizona Democratic Party. That censure definitely sent sort of, you know, sort of shockwaves around the world. Um, Ms. Tehran, is it just that vote on um, refusing to get on board with doing what it takes to pass voting rights, or is it more than that with Kirsten Cinema for Democrats in, in Arizona? Yeah, well, our concern is, of course, voting rights. You know, the, the, the fact that the filibuster is an outdated rule that is not in our Constitution, and we continue to see attacks at our state legislature level, and like it was said in the previous segment, all across the country, 
voting rights are under attack. So this is a very, very important issue, not only to Arizonans, but to everybody in the country to make sure that uh, that uh, democracy prevails and that democracy does not fail. So we looked, of course, uh, at at the the fact that she obstructed uh, the reform of the filibuster to get voting rights done, because in many ways, the fact that the filibuster is there, all many issues that not only Democrats care about, but Arizonans care about, won't get to the finish line to the president because of the filibuster. And and if people don't have access to the ballot box, we can advocate for those bills, for those uh, uh, for the legislation that improves people's lives. Yeah, indeed. And let me play a couple of of, of your fellow um, Democrats in the state. This is Secretary of State Katie Hobbs and Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez um, talking about voting rights. Every senator who voted against advancing voting rights in the in the Senate should be held accountable for that, uh, including our senator. We came out in, in large numbers for both the senators. Mm-hmm. And uh, voting rights, as you know, is very important to indigenous peoples and the Navajo Nation. We should be making laws uh, to make voting easier, not difficult. You know, it seems to me that the demographics of Arizona, having you know grown up in Colorado, not too far away, are very similar um, to Colorado, perhaps even more Latino voters there. Um, it seems that Kirsten Sinema is taking steps that are not good for her politically long term if she wants support, at least from Democrats. Ruben Gallego has put forward and he's been put forward as somebody who apparently is meeting with some of Cinema's donors in New York, who's kind of sort of slightly raised his hand. He hasn't said that he's definitely running. Have Democrats started to consolidate around someone like him, around anyone else uh, instead of, as a replacement for cinema? I'll tell you something. Democrats are working really hard to consolidate our, our our support around Senator Mark Kelly. We have our second senator that we need to defend in, in November of 2022. So my ask to everybody, I'll say it in Spanish, tiempo, dinero y esfuerzo, time, money and effort needs to go into 2022 so that we can protect Mark Kelly, expand our victories at a statewide level, win majorities. So that's our that's a, has to be our laser focus attention. Yeah. And Arizona feels like it is kind of right in the kind of the belly of the beast of election denialism of, you know, the sort of bizarre, you know, tack of the Republican Party toward trying to basically uproot democracy from the ground up. How concerned are you that the 2022 election that you say is so important that Mark Kelly is running in um, will be, you know, impeded by these anti-democratic activities? Well, our concerns are always, yes, our concerns are always through the rise, as you, I don't know if you know, but I'm also uh, a sitting state senator. So I get to see every single day the attempts from the Republican Party to curtail our democracy, from getting rid of our vote by mail system to outlaw drop boxes, to even let the the folks who let defraud it uh, kick people off our voter rolls. So that is absolutely concerning. But we know that we can organize and that we can build relationship, fight these bad bills. But again, this is why we need this federal legislation. Arizona Democratic Party chair and state senator. I'm going to give you your honorific because you earned it. Raquel Tehran, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here this evening. And up next, a relative newcomer is already making quite a name for himself in our absolute worst logbook. 
This one's gonna make your head spin or maybe explode. Stick around, we'll be right back. We have said it over and over and over again. Critical race theory is not taught in any K through 12 schools in America. Full stop, period, with a T at the end. So since that is not a thing that politicians can actually ban, the laws against it across the country have become a catch-all for any topics that are controversial or divisive or really just anything that just plain old makes white people uncomfortable. And that has led to a whole lot of confusion and chaos, since there really is no objective way to decide if something is controversial. Like in Texas, where after the state passed a law saying that teachers cannot teach controversial issues without providing diverse perspectives, a school official said that if teachers have a book on the Holocaust, they should also offer students a book from an opposing perspective on the Holocaust. Or in Florida, where a lecture for educators on the history of the civil rights movement got canceled at the last minute due to concerns that it would have something to do with critical race theory. I mean, he was just going to talk about our country's history, but nope, not allowed. This as legislation is moving forward that would ban any lessons, any lessons that would make white students feel discomfort. Additionally, Ron DeSantis, taking a page from the Texas Bounty Hunter Law, is pushing legislation that would allow parents to sue schools if they teach critical race theory. But the latest foray into CRT madness comes from none other than Glenn Youngkin, who, after banning critical race theory in his very first executive order, has now set up an email tip line, a tip line, get this, tip line, for parents to report any divisive material that's taught at their schools, citing an example of an exercise that a school used to talk about privilege, which once again is not critical race theory. We're asking for folks to send us uh, reports and, and observations that they have um, that will help us uh, be, be aware of things like privileged bingo, be aware of, of, of uh, their child being uh, denied their rights um, that parents have in Virginia. And we're going to we're going to make sure that we catalog it all. And it gives us it gives us a, a great insight into what's happening uh, at the school level. And that gives us further, further ability to make sure that we're rooting it out. Holy First Amendment, the government watching what you're thinking. Ban the books, ban the witches, ban them all. Thankfully for us, Gen Z is already on it with a call on TikTok to flood that line with fake tips. And while tip lines are actually helpful in some cases to report bad behavior, this one seems pretty dark. Our country is already moving far too close to authoritarianism. And while we are not quite there yet, the idea of a tip line just seems a little bit too similar to the informers the Soviet Union relied on or the tip line that China created last year for citizens to report anyone making illegal comments about China's history. So Glenn Youngkin, for creating an atmosphere where teachers not only need to worry about your unsafe ban on mask mandates, but also getting reported on for teaching difficult topics that might cause some discomfort or introspection, you're tonight's absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.